When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is One Hate Minute. Drop of a hat, these guys will rock and roll. What's your name? Wayne Grove. Look like gangbangers working the local 7-Eleven to you. Robbery homicides take you. Give me all you got! Give me all you got! I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best. I'm trying to stop guys like me. A podcast dedicated to all 170 minutes of Michael Mann's LA crime opus Heat, one minute at a time. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to One Heat Minute. I'm your host, Blake Howard, and joining me for the 83rd minute of Michael Mann's 1995 crime opus Heat is. Mr. Kyle Turner, he's a writer for Pace Magazine, for Vice, for Slate, for Village Voice, but I first encountered Kyle writing on the the much-loved but now uh, now sort of sorely missed movie mezzanine site, where... Oh, R.O.P. R.O.P., where Kyle was, like, literally the best editor of this like small patch of movie mezzanine that I'd ever encountered and a guy who actually wrote something for Michael Mann's Guide to Crime and if all editors were as good responsive encouraging and also gave you as much as Kyle it is no surprise that uh you know it, it would be no surprise for me anyway that he's working and you would seeing his byline on all of those great publications that I just talked about one of his most recent pieces on Pays Magazine just flagged again why it was a good idea to get him on the show, which is Mythologies of White Masculinity. He used a couple of different films to heat, but uh, I think I think the title is very apt to talk about. Carl Turner, welcome to One Heat Minute. Thank you so much for having me. Gosh, I... Uh, the, the little, um, uh, space on Movie Mezzanine that I, um, edited was The Balcony, the and balcony. I missed that a lot. That was a lot of fun, um, and it was great working with you at the time. Uh, it's been so long it's it's, um but yeah it's been a long time but uh i think it is underrated to you know i think it's cool like uh one thing that the balcony had was um having you as like an editor and sort of uh chiming in with great ideas and just like canvassing pictures was that you're really responsive and good and it was great and um you know that site it obviously has um sam and co who brought that whole bad boy together like there's so many amazing young talented writers that are writing all over the place that sort of got a chunk of their stuff published on movie mezzanine before it you know it's short you know burned bright for a very short time and then went off Mm -hmm. but yeah so no really great and thank you again for being on the show thank Um, you so much for having me so we're we're here for the 83rd minute um Kyle is uh, a phenomenal writer, and I really wanted, as you know, again, I, I keep telling people, this is my excuse this show is just to talk to people whose writing I really like, people I follow, and uh, about my favorite film of all time, Heat. So we're going to dive into the 83rd minute. This is another phenomenal scene in this movie where you see Neil McCauley, Robert De Niro's character um, coming up to John Voight, who plays Nate, who is actually a bit of a cipher for a real-life criminal and author named Eddie Bunker. And at the time, just for a little bit of background trivia, and we'll get we can get into some of this stuff in a minute. At the time, John Voight um, really wasn't sure that this was actually the role for him. Um, and, and in some of my research, there's like a great quote where behind the scenes he's like, Michael, I think you could get 10 guys who've been in prison who could you know do this role on their ear and I wouldn't have to do it. Um, and Michael Mann says something I thought was really sweet, which is, but then we wouldn't get to work together. So uh, this is a Aww. scene. <laughs> it's, oh, it's, it's cute. Um, so this is a scene where um, I know that there's a few different versions of the film with a few different time codes out there. So um, if you're watching it, it is literally um, the the 
right in the wake of um, uh, Pacino, Sir Vincent Hanna and team being photographed by Neil McCauley, where they're now in a sort of darkened underpass as Nate is handing over all of the files about Vincent and his team. So Kyle and I are going to check this out and then we're going to come back and we're going to talk about heat. We're going to talk about masculinity and get into it. So uh, let's uh, watch and you guys can have a listen along. Kelso come through. Build it back with these. My name is Hannah. First name Vincent. I spent the sergeant advice five yards. Hannah's all over you. Done all the work cars. Michael's house. She hear this? Not yours. They've been losing you at night. And there's a hot dog. Graduate school. Marine Corps. Lieutenant Robbery Homicide, Major Crime Unit. He's taken down some heavy crews. Blew away Frankie Yonder in Chicago. And he was a fucking maniac. He was working narcotics before that. Had some problems with the boys twice. Current wife's Justine. He's why the extra heat. The vice sergeant says Hannah likes you. Kyle, the vice sergeant said that Hannah likes you. The perfect way to enter this minute. That is a great way to end that minute. Um, one thing that I did notice at, at the very first frame of that scene is that it's one point perspective um, and it's the, that car kind of in, in a parking lot and right hanging above it is a street lamp. It kind of looks like a hangman's noose. Oh, we're going back to that. Love these little, um, love these little imagery here. We've had gravestones... Uh, we've had gravestones in the dilapidated um, Los Angeles uh, drive-in, and now, oh, it does look like a noose. Love it, love mm. it, love it. So, Kyle, you've seen Heat many times, or is it the first time as part of this show coming onto it, or is this the first minute of Heat that you've seen coming onto this show? <laughs> this is the first time I have seen Heat for this show. Um, I had actually spent a lot of time avoiding the film. Um, for totally arbitrary reasons, it was because of the running time, um, and I, I like <laughs> fair, a, a fair a fair reason for anyone to avoid anything. I, and I think the more movies you watch, the more times you see something's over two and a half hours, you're like, ugh, why? <laughs> why? What do you have to say to me that is taking yeah. you two and a half hours or more? It was that, and because um, I was unfairly associating it with a kind of uh machismo that didn't interest me that was my assumption having never seen the film and having only um had like uh brief interactions with people who had seen the film and it it didn't strike me as something i would want to watch despite the fact that i do do like collateral a lot i do like public enemies um i do like thief um i do kind of like black hat i know that's like uh, a, a weird opinion to have, but we can um, get into that later on in the podcast. <laughs> it might take us down a um, rabbit hole that we'll never get out of. <laughs> um, but I did kind of have an ambivalent, um, a, a kind of reaction to things about Heat rather than Heat the film, and so I finally watched it in preparation for this, and I was like, "Oh, this is really great. This is a really fascinating film." Um, and I, I listened to the episode with Ian Barr, and what really struck me was um, what uh, you folks were talking about, um, Mia Hansen Love's um, opinion about the film. And it's like, it is a film about relationships. I was surprised to realize that, um, or, or learn that the film's kind of a melodrama. Yes. Yeah. I, and what's so funny is what, what we both adore about that Mia Hansen Love opinion is that she... You can talk to, I feel like I talk to, maybe maybe it's talking to people on this show where the relationships and the melodrama and the sort of, um, the sort of romance, just the general romance of, you know, gangster films and, and, mm-hmm. um, and handsome and, you know, handsome cops and handsome robbers, you know, all the, all of that mm-hmm. stuff. I feel like on this show, I've been able to unpack it a lot, but it's like most people that talk about hate 
or in the shorthand, it's like, oh, that gunfight in the city or, oh, mm. that like that original heist. But the more you sort of unpack it, and especially when I talk to different film critics and filmmakers, it's just all mm. relationships. I never hear yeah, anyone absolutely. talk about it. I, I, You know, some formal craft folk, but at the end of the day, it's like, oh, did, I just love this scene. I love I love this intensity of this scene. I love Justine talking mm. to Vincent in and telling him that he, he just he is what he hunts. And I love those. And so mm-hmm. that's what I find in this entire mm. thing. There's all these little mm-hmm. mini relationships. And now we're here with mm-hmm. Neil McCauley and his work wife. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, yes. <laughs> John Boyd. Yeah, his work wife. And I think what's interesting about this scene is not only is it kind of like a, a work wife relationship, but the work wife is preparing him for another relationship. He says, Hannah likes you. It's there to establish the kind of dynamic, uh, the kind of crackling dynamic that's going to exist between um, uh, between Hannah uh, and Macaulay. And it, what's so funny, it's, it's not like we weren't already, you know, I suppose primed. Like we know that these right. guys are... You know, it's it's just funny. It's like it's like hearing it, or the, the the benefit of this scene is we've already seen that Hannah's like, oh, these guys are good. Like these guys are mm-hmm. good, and it's almost like mm-hmm. when when it comes back to Neil, and you see him receive it, it's what I think is so funny about this scene is the way that he's sort of. So sort of casually taking it, a little bit of a, like a cheeky grin appearing on his face, mm-hmm. like in this minute. He's yeah, like, absolutely. He's he just, loves it. He loves it, yeah. He's like, oh, well, that's sweet. Isn't that nice that yeah. he thinks I'm good? It's sort of very mm-hmm. condescending, but it's kind of funny at the same time. It's kind of like hearing someone that you have an admiration for also likes you back. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, What? That's that's no sorry. That's my reaction. <laughs> it's like I really like someone. Like oh, I really like that. You're like sorry. You like that? <laughs> Are you okay? Um, but yeah, no. So I, I and it's what's funny here is like again you've got the hangman's noose, but like right on the second as this begins, and it couldn't look more. They've done a lot of things in the open, but like sharing information to the cops in this moment, mm. it's like in the underpass, late at night mm. in LA, like mm-hmm. completely hidden. And it also like couldn't look more obvious that they're doing something shady at the same time because they're just sitting right. in a lit up car. But at the set, you know, it's one of those rare moments where you, uh, one of those rare moments where it's like, it's not LA, but it's really it, hiding under an underpass is very LA movie. It's very LA noir. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Do you do you personally conceive of um, LA movies as nighttime movies or daytime movies? That is a great question. Uh, it kind of feels like um, I feel like there's only two kinds it's so weird okay so i'm gonna say like a bunch of my favorite films so you know like chinatown i love inherent vice Mm. um and when i think of la confidential i think of day like like Mm -hmm. that la is daytime and sun drenched and hot and and um there's not really any night times but like with heat um particularly because of the evening scenes and 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 a lot of the nighttime scenes in this movie and collateral, I don't know, mm-hmm. there's sort of this intrinsic nighttime quality. I might just have to say day just because of frequency of movies. So like, yeah, like, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I don't know. It's a, it feels like two shades. Maybe that, oh, yeah, know, absolutely. like drive. Yeah. Like it doesn't feel like there's a, there's a mixture. There's those rare moments in like collateral where it's dusk and he's sort of coming into mm-hmm. his shift, but yeah, it is either night or day. It doesn't seem mm-hmm. to operate in that middle. What about yourself? It's a great question. Um, I usually think of them as nighttime movies, even though I've probably seen more daytime LA movies. Yeah. But I think of like Mulholland Drive oh, and Drive. Great. Yes, um, of course. Uh, Collateral. I really. You were talking about the weird um, Apple screensaver. Um, yes. That's that's uh, um, on Apple TV, and that reminds me a lot of Collateral. The weird. Th- those Apple screensavers are bizarre. They're kind of like. They're hyper fantastical. They're trippy. Yeah. yeah. They, everything's like, it looks like someone's color corrected it. Like some, like mm-hmm. a, 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 vi- yeah. a, a visual effects boffin has 
like perfected it to the point that it's like a you know the uncanny valley LA like it's not yeah. quite believable mm. that it's real that it's so perfect and mm. pristine but yeah it's yeah. really creepy yeah that yeah collateral Mulholland Drive of course Mulholland Drive mm-hmm. is yeah one of those it's um it's both shades it's both shades there for for both of us I think well, John Voight mm-hmm. like what a guy with a weird career like a yes. And he's kind of like a De Niro Pacino, as in his early roles are where all the prestige lies. And he's got a few of these mm-hmm. tailing, you know, a tail end of his career where there's sort of some prestige. And then there's just the batty, crazy sort of, you know, TMZ antics with Angelina before Angelina became uh-huh. Hollywood royalty and the movies like mm-hmm. Anaconda and those other trashy movies. Like, it's such a weird... This was like, I don't know, maybe one of his last really big and significant performances and it's such a nothing minor role. Mm-hmm. He shows up in the weirdest things, but um, that hairstyle is <laughs> really something. Is is Nate a character in L.A. Take- Takedown? I haven't seen that. Uh, yes, he is. Yes, he is. And he is a character in LA Takedown. Yes. But it's more like, it's less, it's less pronounced because this guy was always, Mm. um, there's, uh, there's a book which Michael Mann prescribed all of the performers in the film called No Beast Mm. So Fierce. And Mm -hmm. it's written by a a guy named Edward Bunker or a lot of the time they talk about him, they call him Eddie Bunk. And he's got... He's got a bit of that slick back curly hair. He's got the mustache. But what I love about this mm-hmm. frame, where like f- f- pause six seconds into this, mm-hmm. it's is that not Colin Farrell directly out of Miami Vice? Like it yeah, is exactly exactly mm-hmm. perfect Colin Farrell mustache. He's only mm-hmm. missing that yeah. sort of little flavor saver underneath. Um, mm. It's just like it's a real bizarre like echo um, happening like twenty one years later or whenever Miami Vice came out after Heat. I, I would actually argue. I would make it like to make a corrective. I don't think Nate is is Macaulay's work wife. I think uh, Nate is his work mother because the way that he, the way that that um, <laughs> Nate is looking at him is like, so I gave you some papers. What what is your response? I gave you some documents. And and also, he's like the you're right about the mother thing because it's he's not happy about this courting, if you like, Mm -hmm. the way that he's Mm -hmm, framing the conversation. He's sort of going, Mm -hmm. this guy likes you, but this isn't a good thing. This is like, and Mm -hmm. as we lead into the, you know, we're sort of cutting, we we end at this perfect moment in the 83rd minute, but in the 84th minute, it's like the, it gets really, this is where the minute gets really Mm -hmm. juicy. It's that Mm -hmm. they're talking, they they sort of expand and discuss like, this is not a good idea. You know, Mm -hmm. all the signs, all of the things that we would normally talk about as it, flat red flags that say this is a bad idea to keep going this is sort of yeah you know if it wasn't already obvious that the cops are on your tail and you've had to have a come to jesus moment if you like with your whole crew to say whether we're going to go and do Mm -hmm. it now the work mother is even kind Mm -hmm. of saying oh you should not you should (laughs) this should not happen if he asks you out for coffee you should not go 100 (laughs) percent. do not go for Mm -hmm. coffee with this guy um Mm -hmm. but it's it's one thing that I've found now uh, is a lot of people sort of talk about significant moments for Neil changing his code. You know, he's such a codified guy and this is all about, you know, whether it's like a moral code and amoral code on other sides of the law. But you've got Neil who a lot of people say, oh, you know, the moment that he decides to go and kill Wayne Grow is when he really breaks his code. And... I feel like over and over again we've seen him compromise. Like he mm-hmm. he is a codified guy, but he's setting himself up mm-hmm. for a potential failure in the long term because he's compromising because the score is big enough and it's worth the stretch and 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 he's overconfident with his you know his capability or or just confident with his ability, whatever whatever way you read it. Do you think that he is not so much? Coded by some sort of moral or amoral code, but more of an emotional code. Hmm, that's a good question. Um, I, I mean, what struck me about Heat was this kind of um, queer cinema is my beat. Um, yes. <laughs> but, so what struck me in this is, is a queer reading in this kind of like um, this 
weird emotional play that exists between the two, between uh, Macaulay and Hannah. Yeah, it's it's a strange... I, I almost think that for so long, Neil has kind of... Um, he's spent his whole life, or at least the latter part of his life after prison, sort of squashing and the emotional sphere. And he kind of gets to this moment. And even like with women, you can sort of tell his... I, I think his first interaction with Edie... My reading of the film is that his first interaction with Edie he has never has any intention of ever seeing her again. He just mm. never has. He walks out of that moment and there's sort of a little pang of regret. But it's only when he's sort of the architect of this, um, you know, his sort of fake family gathering um, that Vincent calls the like the crook convention. When he's the architect there, I think that that's like a shift for me where he does start to be more emotional and then the connections that he starts to find, it starts to all be about emotion instead of reason you know he's like mm-hmm. in that moment he's like i think i need to make the shift um because yeah I, that that's that's my reading of it that it's like we we watch neil's transition from that sort of professional like just squashing emotion to mm-hmm. flicking on the switch and it's when that mm-hmm. starts to happen you watch all the little disciplines start to slip mm-hmm. i believe it it exists both ways because i don't think without this case that Hannah would have been able to react the way that he does, uh, bringing his stepdaughter to the hospital. Oh, yes. Yes. So you're saying that, like, with Hannah, it's his awakening emotionally as well that he's mm. cottoning onto this mm-hmm. and he's, like, opening yeah. up that different sphere in his life. Yeah, yes. that's, mm-hmm. that's, yeah, that's really interesting. That's really interesting. I definitely think that with this particular case, even though that many of the arguments are regarding the work-life balance and being able to channel things emotionally into his home relationships, that this case, uh, in spite of being obsessed with it, that it is able to bring him back around. Yes. It is able to bring him back into to kind of balancing those things out and, 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 and enlivening, his, enlivening his emotional life for both of them. Yeah, it's that, um, it's that weird and wonderful... Uh... Sorry, one second, Carl. I'm just going to pause you for one second because my, mm-hmm. my baby girl is just crying, so I'm just going <laughs> run to run to see it. One second. Yeah, not a problem. I'm so sorry. Thank you for no thank you for that. <laughs> sorry. All right. We were talking about emotional awakenings. I'll just cut that back in. Um, uh, what, was it? what were we talking about? Emotional awakenings for both of them. So, do you think that it's sort of operating concurrently at the the way that they're sort of both? Um, both these kind of professionals and they look at each other in in that sort of weird um, anti-reflection in that coffee scene and they sort of see yeah. everything mm-hmm. <laughs> everything in their lives um, coming to a head. They're like, oh, that's what, this is what I am. All those sort of dark secrets, mm-hmm. that little confessional, if you mm-hmm. like, is, is, is pointing them in uh, to all their weaknesses and all the things they need to do differently. And they've they've seen each other everything they've done incorrectly or that they've done wrong in their personal lives um, because uh, as you said the, the encounter that um, um, Macaulay has uh, he initially or or it's read that he won't contact her again yes but then he but then he does and I think it's a combination of that coffee scene and the kind of uh, quasi family gathering at the at the restaurant that allows him to to come to um, that conclusion. I think that I think both characters are 
have these orbiting events around them, and it's this case that kind of anchors those things. Yes. Isn't it funny how, you know, isn't it funny how each, and, you know, they feel, sometimes these sort of archetypal characters feel very singular and they feel very driven and they almost feel like a character on train tracks. You know, you you see where they're starting out at the beginning and you know what their destination is going to be. But I love watching in this film, especially like Neil, the way that he reacts, you know, we've got his work mum with in this particular scene that we're talking <laughs> about with, um, with John Voight. But I really like, um, you know, interactions with, say, Ashley Judd's Charlene Chihilis. You know, he's keeping mm-hmm. that little family together. Um, his, his scenes with Michael Torito, um, um, played by Tom Sizemore. So, you know, he's sort of mm-hmm. like more of a mentor and he's a bit of a dullard. He's, you know, he's not, mm-hmm. he's a soldier. He just listens to orders and he doesn't really have much agency. But I just love mm-hmm. how you've got this, these weird little sort of influencing relationships that, when they're at a nice family dinner, it's all happy and it's all smiles. Mm-hmm. But there's a whole bunch of all this other context that sort of underpins everything that's happening. They're getting influences mm-hmm. here, advice here, reflections of good and bad things here. Um, mm-hmm. What really stuck out to you? What else stuck out to you in the film? Because obviously you said queer cinema is your beat, but what, yeah. like, what, mm-hmm. what do you read into these other relationships and especially the relationships with women besides mm-hmm. you know, the central characters? There are these really interesting under underpinnings or, or webs of power dynamics that exist. But in terms of the relationship with women, there's, I guess what um, initially made me hesitant to see this film um, is that I was expecting uh, something much more crueler. But yeah. I feel like there, I feel like there is at least one other character that counteracts anyone who's not self-aware about the consequences of their actions. Um, like, uh, I believe, um, uh, I believe Macaulay has, uh, Tom Sizemore sleep over his house. Um, uh, when he gets into a fight with Ashley Judd. Um, yeah, so Val, he's aware. Val Gilmer. Yeah. Val, oh, Val yeah, Gilmer. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're, um, you're so, right. He's aware that <laughs> he acted like a tool. Yes. Yeah, Absolutely. I believe that that many that people like um, De Niro and Pacino, uh, Hannah and Macaulay are aware of other people's actions um, with regards to the way that they manifest their masculinity, and yet they still are struggling with their own awareness. And I think that this particular case is allowing them to to reconcile with that, if that makes sense. Yeah, there's a, there's a great deflection where they have all the answers for everyone else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, I love that about Neil. Perf- like, that's Neil perfectly. It's just like hollow husk, has no personal life whatsoever. And he's the guy who's negotiating with Charlene about why she should be in the relationship. And he's the guy that's telling Michael that his wife Elaine looks after him. And, you know, mm-hmm. he's Absolutely. The, you know, and, and, and he's the guy telling John Voight here in this very scene that we're having a look at, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. you know. He, he, and then Hannah has all those other relationships oh. with the different detectives and whatnot, which is really interesting. Yeah. They kind of, they kind of work at this as this, um, this chess piece. Yes. Um, yeah. And, and even Hannah's like weird relationships with, uh, they have to be his anchors in each different interaction too, which is funny mm-hmm. because he's like with the, each criminal, he's like other than Neil who he respects um, and he sees that sort of those things reflecting in him. You know, he doesn't really care about crim- like the criminals. He just treats them like they're nothing. They're just a means to an end. Mm-hmm. And he's just like, mm-hmm. he's happy to play you know, manic and crazy and all these other people in his life, in his professional life. He's, mm-hmm. They're anchoring him. They're being very calm. Um, mm-hmm. This, uh, I, I like the framing, I like the framing in this scene of Voight because it gives, it's such an authoritative framing of him. Like he's, he's sort of mm-hmm. larger than life. He's right up there and he's, he's sort of recounting wisdom as we're like sort of looking up to him from the bottom mm-hmm. of the frame here. I just, I love, I love some of the framing in this, oh, I love it in this scene, even though it's sort of a very claustrophobic little, uh, car sequence. Mm-hmm. And then there's detail. That's sort of the great man thing when you're watching things on Blu-ray. You can literally read blueprints um, yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> of, of all the things that they're going through here. 
But, that's the bank security, right? Yeah, the the bank. Uh, I think they hack in days earlier to trick the alarms, and so it's all the all the blueprints right, right. that they need to trick the alarms. But I love. And I'm do so- you? Well, oh, sorry. Go sorry. Ahead. I was just wondering how you felt about much of the framing is uh, looking at Nate and cutting off the top of of Macaulay's head. Yeah, because. Uh, Right now, Nate's in that authoritative position. Neil's just sort of looking at stuff. What I love, though, is the shift in framing. So here, as soon as he sees Vincent, it becomes much more intimate. Like mm-hmm. the, the the cut there, uh, and it's at, for those playing along at home, it's about 28 seconds in. It's so, we see that, you know, um, we see that Neil's sort of just pouring over whatever the work is. So Nate's sort of mm-hmm. the authoritative narrator. This is what you're looking at. Did they deliver? You know, he's allowed mm-hmm. to be sort of didactic. And this is where it starts to be more more personal, more mm-hmm. relationship advice. This mm-hmm. guy likes you and he knows every rigorous detail. Um, and, mm-hmm. and, you know, he's really wanting Neil's attention. And so you're getting to see without, not, not in as much granular detail, but it's, it's very much after now looking up to what the job is, he's now looking down into all about Vincent, where he was at, all these sorts of details, quiet whispers, and Void is mm-hmm. like not taking his eyes off him. I love, I love the framing here because it's very soft on De Niro. He's looking at it, and there's this very intent, mm-hmm. you know, the same way you would be chatting to a friend at a at a bar or in a car, driving mm-hmm. somewhere and confiding in mm-hmm. them. This is what this is what this scene is re- reminiscent of, mm-hmm. and even and it's caring. Like you can even see in the in the still yeah. that I've framed right behind me is this very caring. You know, forty five seconds in John Voight's face, very caring. Like the all these there, si- all these signs are bad. There is a little bit again of a, of a maternal warmth in the scene. The way that he that uh, that Nate is looking at Macaulay. There's something um, expectant again. Um, I believe that Nate doesn't want some sort of neutral um, kind of, I've uh, um, absorbed this information and I'm going to go do my job, but he wants like an emotional reaction from him. Yeah, he wants some, he wants active. I think it's, yeah, for me, it's not even emotional. It's like active reaction. I want something assertive. Mm -hmm. Um, And you Mm -hmm. see him in other moments where he's like, um, earlier in the film when he's like, oh, would you like us to sell the Barabons to Van Zandt? That's the William Fichter character. And mm-hmm. Neil just says, try it on. And that's the direction mm-hmm. to go, yes. And similarly, mm-hmm. when he actually buys the bank job from Kelso, Tom Noonan's character, he's like, I bought it. He's like, oh, good. You know, like that's mm-hmm. the assertion. Whereas here, he's really trying. he's really trying to get through. He's like, I'm telling mm-hmm. you all these things. And I'm trying not to be too pressing. It's almost like trying to tell mm-hmm. a friend of yours um, something that they've done is a really bad idea, whether it's relationships or mm-hmm. a money decision. It almost feels like it's right. like you've, you're trying really hard to massage what you're saying, but not mm-hmm. not uh, withhold any facts. Like this mm-hmm. is this is why the extra heat. This mm-hmm. is well, this is what's mm-hmm. happening. Um, you know, and, and he starts to sort of. Um, he starts to sort of build the foundations and provide the context of like, he's had two marriages. He's onto his third, Justine. Like they know right. every bit of detail um, about Vincent's life and, you know, mm-hmm. coming up to some other great lines, you know, you mm-hmm. know, and I don't think, I don't think Macaulay has anyone else who would tell him that the information that way, who would be able to warn him uh, of, of the kind of dynamic that's going to be established between them more intensely. No, there's not. And what's strange is Vincent doesn't really have an equivalent. Like he's got, yeah, I, I, I sort, of, I sort of joked earlier about work wives because I think Rachel, the crime scene um, officer, is kind of Vincent's work wife. Um, he's mm-hmm. very candid with her about you know the emotions of the scene. Um, you know, obviously all of the you know the nitty gritty and gruesome facts and 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 allows him a, a space to vent before he has to sort of continue putting on his show. Um, um, you know, and in that scene, um, you know, uh, that episode I spoke to Manola Dargis and she said that was the scene that Vincent acts his most Greta Garbo-esque, you know, as a performance. Uh-huh. So, um, and right. so when he talks to his work wife, he's really very confiding and, and, 
and and you know very candid and then when he has to react and interact with someone emotionally that he's it's mm-hmm. almost a little bit like a performance as well as him just stepping into the stage like it's a performance but yeah he doesn't really have that or, or not someone who deals with him like that not yeah. in that, not mm-hmm. in that kind of way mm-hmm. and when he actually tries to um interact with his wife that you can see how much that's that's deteriorated oh, yes. and maybe and I think I, I think one could possibly assert that um, that his lack of, of person like that is why he's so drawn to chasing after Macaulay. Yeah, you feel like you feel like Justine. That's the, in those in those amazing series of conversations. This almost feels like a one that's slightly distant from that. But in that amazing series of conversations between men and women. Um, a little, a little bit earlier in the film, Justine really wants to be able to do exactly what Nate is doing right now, mm-hmm. is to be able to have a conversation. And what I think is like this sort of tragic um, uh, irony that functions in this film is that like any time that Justine talked about a flaw or talks about a frustration, it's almost like every other conversation that happened between two couples later on in the film, they're doing what, what, Vincent and Justine fail at like there's that beautiful scene mm-hmm. with Lillian and Donald Breeden just played by Dennis Haysbert um, mm-hmm. and, and Kim Staunton and they like she is so like there's only other one other person in the whole film that is anywhere remotely like Nate in this scene and that's and that's Kim Staunton in that scene with Don Breeden where she's trying to calm him mm-hmm. down I'm proud of you you know all that sort of stuff in that scene you know it's mm-hmm. it's, it's coupley but it's also quite maternal it's not confrontational Mm -hmm. it's Mm -hmm. um comforting but it's also sort of forthright and Mm -hmm. you know this is what we've got to get through and it's almost Mm -hmm. like coaching very passively Mm -hmm. coaching someone as Mm -hmm. well Mm -hmm. what's interesting what was interesting to me about heat was that um all the signifiers of this conventional um archetypal masculinity gangsters cops criminals are there but they seem to be broken down into this this microscopic understanding of the emotional underpinnings of of who those men are and the relationships that they have with the people around them and the people that they have to work with and i thought that was really fascinating yeah it's um it's it's almost like all those other michael mann films we were talking about at the beginning, the the collaterals and the public enemies, and they all have those qualities, but they seem to be much more focused. What's really cool about mm-hmm. Heat is the the sort of sprawling nature, the space to to really provide context, and what seems like it's like di- digressions from maybe a central story. They're all these like essential bits and pieces, as you said, to get to the microscopic because you have to know their network. You have to know how mm-hmm. they interact with people. And like you said, there's so much telling about, what do they say? Like when you're dating someone, um, watch how they speak to waiters and waitresses. And, yeah. and mm-hmm. it's, <laughs> it's like the little interactions that you kind of need to know. Um, mm-hmm. And you learn more about Neil emotionally in a scene with Ashley Judd that Chris will never know about mm-hmm. than you do in any scene that he's interacting with, like the people in his crew, really. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, mm-hmm. and it's the same with Vincent. You learn more about Vincent in when he's isolated from Justine, even when it's with Lauren, like rescuing her or whatever it is. It, it, it's almost like he, can't, he couldn't do that with his wife. He couldn't be that raw, mm-hmm. right? And Vincent has uh, so. So you were talking a little bit about how Neil has that quasi family gathering. Um, Vincent has that as well in the film, doesn't he? Yeah, they've got the uh, the cops going out. And the cops with yeah, their wives, mm-hmm. with uh, mm-hmm. with Justine and the gang. But Vincent mm-hmm. still and... does. Vincent still feel a lot like a loner to you in that scene. Like even though for me he's like with Justine, but he's not as he doesn't feel as you know jovial and together as the rest of that crew. Maybe it's just even in the framing right, that I'm reading that into it. No, absolutely, I, I agree. There's something off. There's uh, something. Um, not totally uh, come to fruition in terms of the relationship that he wants to have and that Justine wants to have with him. Yes. Yeah. And, and so they're, ha- they're off having this little, their little dancing and their little dalliance away from the other crew, because it's almost like in that moment, Vincent has to be more of a husband than a 
you know, fr- out with friends sort of thing, because this is, mm-hmm. he feels like he gives so little of himself to poor Justine, as she says mm-hmm. later on in that speech. So um, mm-hmm. you see him like acting really great with his crew. They all love working with him um, because they love the direction. But at the same time, there's that sort of absence there. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I agree. What What about, a, um, you know, you're a LA at night guy. Um, is, is that sort of digital, we're talking like from a pure, uh, pure, like formal perspective now, is that a lot of sort of, is like digital LA, um, sorry, digital photography, is that nighttime LA, like that sort of very, um, you know, synthesized Los Angeles like you have in, in movies like, um, Drive and you have in movies like Collateral, is that kind of like LA at night? Is that, is it sort of? more associated with that than the sort of softer, you know, Dante Spinotti, uh, still working on 35 millimeter film sort of look at LA <laughs> at night. There's something, um, I actually prefer the kind of grainy at night. What you get with, yeah. uh, di- with, uh, digital at night, um, it's kind of, um, fake diffuse, I yes. think. Yes. Um, and that's fine. That's fine. It works <laughs> for whatever reason. Um, I think Drive is, a, is an excellent film, but um, the fake diffuse best works in something like Collateral, where um, that seems to to be like this this um, uh, what's the word? It, it seems to be like the the crumbs of reality, so to speak. It's it's like the the world that Collateral exists in is like a complete underworld or exists outside of, of whatever reality that these characters would normally inhabit. And I think that's when you're using that digital artifice to comment on that, to comment on the way that we interact with artifice in reality, that I think is when it's most interesting. But I think um, oftentimes digital nighttime LA is just, uh, um, doesn't have that kind of um, thought put into it. It's so funny that you said that about the digital artifice because I was just thinking about Miami Vice, the show. So Michael Mann having such an instrumental sort of behind-the-scenes role in the original Miami Vice, the TV show. And that was a mm-hmm. that was Miami in the daytime, like completely sun-drenched, you know, white, white slacks, no socks, loafers, you know, flamingos, boats, all that sort of thing was very, very, very light, very bright. And like, I loved how you said the crumbs, the crumbs of reality. He kind of reinvents Miami Vice as this permanent night space. Like the South of Mm -hmm. America is like permanent nighttime. And, and instead of the, you know, I guess, uh, instead of the, the sort of, uh, like a firelight it's the city firelight it's that sort of hue of like orange um that is mm-hmm. that just completely lights up the city and that diffuse um fake nighttime or that you know you know charged up nighttime that you feel like you can see miles mm. and miles and miles into the distance um is is the palette that you see in Miami Vice now so it's like mm. one form of style is this sort of overt um you know sun-drenched style and now it's like that's that that works completely for a, you know film and cinema style or or even a video style on TV. But mm-hmm. this is this is nighttime digital photography. This is like this is reinvention. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you get that sense. noise there that is really fascinating. Yes. Um, did you know that they're actually taking out the orange um, street lamps in LA? Really? Yeah, what? they're working on replacing them with um, with kind of like those fluorescent lights or, or phosphorescent. That's not the word. It's not orange. It's like, it's not tungsten anymore. They're trying to work <laughs> towards a, a wider light. A, a whiter light. God, yeah. that's, um, it's, it's just going to feel like the suburbs in Get Out, you know, in Get Out. That yeah, like, exactly. <laughs> it's just, I don't know which one's better. Do I want to feel like, do I want to feel like it's the Miami Vice nights or do I want to feel like it's Get Out? I think I'm going to go with Miami Vice. I don't mind tungsten. Miami Vice. I'm going to go with There's tungsten. Some... There's something, there's something ethereal about tungsten. There's something really beautiful about, even in that first frame. There's something 
really ethereal and, and spiritual about being under that orange light. Um, I was in LA um, in October 2016 visiting a friend, um, and there were certain places where they had replaced the lights. I was like, oh, that's weird. It's not normal. Like, because this, even in this doesn't look like even in, Holland Drive anymore. Yeah, no, no. Even in, in other places in, in the United States, I grew up in Connecticut, uh, which is in the Northeast, those tungsten lights are representative of like entering another world. That that night is a totally different landscape. Um, and it, I, I think it's interesting that this scene, again, we're under the underpass, but it's, a, it's as if that this scene, the scenes at night, take place in a different world. Yeah, and there's such a... Because I grew up on the... I, I grew up in the eastern side of Australia, but it much, as far as weather is concerned, I grew up in like a, a beachside town about an hour north of Sydney. And so the sun would set, and you, especially in the summer, you'd have these long summer days, and it would set, and it would, you know, you know, uh, particularly beautiful nights would come down, and those tungsten lights would turn on. And it's almost like the transition from sunlight into this weird orange was almost like, perfect poetry because it was like that sort of fake sunset you know and it just mm-hmm. like it completely yeah. then skewed the whole landscape so i yeah I, I i don't know there's something about seaside los angeles you know those sun you know those quintessential hollywood sunsets that you occasionally see and now that not being tungsten would be quite strange quite yeah it, it'd almost be unreal it's like too artif- it's like yeah i don't know i don't know i don't know about it i'm a bit weirded out by that it's a little sad because also when um, uh, when uh, tungsten is shining on this the sidewalk, it sparkles. Yes, it's, it sparkles in a way that that white light does not. No, God, it's it's way less dramatic. Well, maybe it's more dramatic. I don't know. Um, we're in this lovely scene. We've got John Voigt here. We've got Robert De Niro. Um, are these guys, uh, are any of the actors in here formative for you, Kyle? Like, are you a big fan of any of the particular performers that um, are littered in this absolutely ridiculously stacked cast? Al Pacino was uh, really big for me. Um, not in uh, in, a, in a Michael Mann film, or even in The Godfather, for that matter, um, but... I first realized that Al Pacino is one of the one of my favorite or one of the best actors I'd ever seen in Angels in America. Um, oh, which the stage was based. The stage yeah, play. It, they did an adaptation for HBO in in two thousand three that was directed by Mike Nichols. Um, I, I remember it. Yeah, well, well, yeah. I think in Australia it showed on our on our cable networks. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, uh, and he plays this uh, very grotesque kind of calculating um character who's based on a real person Roy Cohn um I almost blinked on his name for a second but Roy Cohn uh was um a lawyer and he actually um he has some connection to Donald Trump I don't remember exactly what it was um but in in Angels in America his job is um to kind of facilitate um these different connections between um, this this uh, Mormon clerk uh, who works in New York and get him to Washington, D.C. Um, as Roy Cohen's life is kind of falling apart because he's about to be sued because he, uh, he's been embezzling money, I believe. Yes. Um, and in the midst of that, he's being diagnosed with AIDS, kind of right as the AIDS crisis is, is um, at its height. And it's just an incredible performance um he did he take away golden globes and emmys that year i think from memory i think so yeah it was a big yeah it was like big big Mm -hmm. awards and was there who was the uh who was the female lead in meryl street yeah of course (laughs) i was like meryl street and mary louise parker and mary louise parker is who i was actually yeah Yeah. thinking of but yeah meryl Mm street of course yeah mary louise parker wow there's a there's this incredible scene where Al Pacino um, is as Roy Cohn talking with his doctor, uh, played by James Cromwell, and James and and his doctor is basically saying, "Roy, you have AIDS," um, and he is walking around the idea of implicating Roy as someone who has slept with men or who might be uh, queer or gay. <clears throat> and what's 
uh, brilliant about that scene, um, which has to be both Mike Nichols and, and the original playwright, Tony Kushner, um, is that that scene operates as a way for Roy to establish power, um, not only a personal vendetta against anyone, a personal vendetta against his doctor, but this this political power and the way that power is codified yes when in a broader sense and i think that's also evident in this film power exists on a very personal microscopic level but also in this broader political context between different characters and networks well i couldn't i couldn't find a way to finish this episode better than (laughs) than exactly what you just said ladies and gentlemen Kyle Turner, of course, you need to follow um, Kyle Pace Magazine. That's where you can find his main beat. Um, he's a fascinating and prodigiously talented dude. And a, and it, if this episode has not made you, you know, deftly aware of um, his aptitude when it comes to filmmaking, um, just go and read some of his stuff. Kyle, thank you so much for being part of the show. This has been an absolute blast. Thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun. I'm so glad that I finally seen it and I got to talk about it with you. And I'm so pleased that you liked it. It's so refreshing <laughs> when I hear that someone who I've asked to do the show really enjoys Heat and uh, and and adds it to their list of like, oh, this I I underestimated it. Um, and any time that we can both collectively talk about Angels in America, Mia Hansen Love, um, <laughs> and I can forget Meryl Streep, um, then that's a good day as far as <laughs> so, sorry guys, I didn't. Mean of course we love Meryl of course of course um but uh, 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 I'm just I'm just so grateful for your time so thank you so much um guys thank you for listening to One Heat Minute as always um I've been your host Blake Howard um if you want to um if you want to follow and uh, and and stalk Kyle appropriately um on the Twitter sphere um all you all you need to do is go to at tile Kerner um, so that's it. I, I didn't. I didn't mess up the pronunciation. That's exactly what no, I that's said. That's correct. That is yeah, a, absolutely. It's a spoonerism it, of my name. It is a spoonerism of his name. So you just go to at Tolkona. You can see that there, and, and that will lead you on to the many things that he does. Garth Franklin, thank you for our website design. Mr. Paul Davies, thank you for our theme. And guys, thank you for continuing to listen to this mad project. We're at the eighty-third minute. We are two episodes away from being halfway through this project so thank you so much for listening please subscribe rate and review oneheatminute.com is the site and uh we'll catch you on another episode of heat uh, of one heat minute around the corner when you need mealtime inspiration it's worth shopping kroger where you'll find over thirty thousand mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie and no matter what tasty choice you make you'll enjoy our everyday low prices plus extra ways to save like digital coupons worth over six hundred dollars each week you can also save up to one dollar off per gallon at the pump with fuel points more savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping kroger worth it every time kroger fresh for everyone fuel restrictions apply